Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. We live in an age of extremism, from Islamic radicalism to the resurgent far right. Over the last 20 years, our public life, from Paris to Christchurch, has been punctuated by the violent actions of those convinced that their ideology needs to be forced onto the world around them. What is it that pulls certain people into this world, and crucially, what can be done to pull them back out? Joining me on the bunker today to discuss this is Charlotte MacDonald Gibson, whose new book, Far Out, Encounters with Extremists, tells the story of a host of people from all over the world who became radicalised, but then came out the other side. Welcome to the bunker, Charlotte. It's great to be here. Thanks, Justin. So what first drew you to this subject and these people? Well, I think um, it might be quite interesting because in the past, most of my journalism focused on the other side. So it focused on um, the sort of perceived victims of the time in, in which we live. So, for example, in 2015, I wrote a book about the refugee crisis, which followed the lives of five different people who arrived in, in Europe and sort of traced the EU's uh, response to the refugee crisis and told it through this very humanistic approach, this very empathetic approach of really engulfing the, the reader into these people's lives. So that's where you know well, most of my journalism was about. But then in 2016, I ended up being caught in the um, terror attacks at Brussels Airport in, in March 2016. And uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't actually caught up in the bombs, but I'd just gone past security. So I was caught up in the evacuation of the airport and I saw the aftermath outside. So that had quite an impact on me, actually, because it made me think, well, if I'm looking at the sort of times we live in and Europe was really beginning to question, you know, those things that are taken for granted, the sort of safety, security, we'd have the economic crisis, the refugee crisis. Now there was this wave of terror attacks. I thought if we really want to understand what's going on, we need to see it from both sides, not just from the side of the people who um, suffer as a result, but also from the side of the people who are the perpetrators in a way. I, I, we had to see the extremist side, I felt, if we were to understand what was happening in our societies. And if we were to understand it, and if we can understand it, then we're much better placed to be able to try and find the, the solutions to it as well. And what preconceptions did you have about what you thought you were going to find? Were you, what were you expecting extremists to be like as such? Well, I think that's a really interesting one, because I think all of us view extremism through our own personal political prisms in a way. And I think none of us can help that. And so, you know, I certainly had more preconceptions about people from the far right than I did about people from the far left or people from Islamist extremist groups who I did naturally feel more empathy towards or more sort of sympathy perhaps for those viewpoints or how someone ends up there. So that was one thing that was really interesting for me was challenging my own preconceptions when it came to the far right. Because I think that if I looked at people from, like, for example, young people who were going to Syria at the start of the Syrian civil war, especially before the, the, the brutality of, of ISIS became apparent, you know, I could see those motivations. And a lot of those motivations were rooted in this desire to, to do something good, this desire to have an impact in the world, this desire to, to have a change in the world. And so I could see that perspective. But I find it very difficult to see how anybody, you know, going into the far right with that sort of, you know, with the obvious xenophobia, the racism, the hatred, how anybody could think that that was doing a good thing. And so that was really interesting to me to interview the people and really delve into their lives and to see how, in, in fact, they came from a very similar viewpoint as well. It's the same feelings that are then exploited in that recruitment process. And I think the what was really interesting for me was one young guy, an um, Australian guy, he ended up in a neo-Nazi group in, in Australia. 
And he said to me, he said to me, you know, I was at this really low point in my life. He'd just been hospitalized after a suicide attempt. He said anybody could have come to me. It could have been extreme Islamist group. It could have been an extreme far left group. It could have been anybody. It just happened to the far right who found me at that time. So I think that really illustrates how the feelings, the human circumstances, the human emotions that, that end, that lead people into these groups, they're universal across the ideologies. And you mentioned there, I mean, the obvious examples when we think of extremism are Islamic radicals and neo-Nazis, but the book goes much more widely into the subject than that. You know, we also encounter people who became part of radical cults, people who became involved with left-wing militancy. Why was it important journalistically to cover more ground like that? I think I wanted to challenge people's preconceptions in the same way I challenged my own preconceptions. I wanted other people to think about who or what they thought an extremist was. And to sort of make them think again about, well, you know, maybe it could have been me, you know, and just to really show those sort of universal human feelings that we all have, especially when we're young, that desire to have an impact on the world, that desire to have a say over our own lives, those feelings of alienation and loneliness that, that grab us all, that those are universal feelings that they can take us in, in a different direction. And it also felt to me like there are lots of books out there written about the far right. Most of those are written by people who are members of the far right who then write their own stories. There's tons of books about that. There's lots of books about Islamist extremism. Again, often mostly written by, you know, often people who aren't from that background writing about jihadi brides, for example. And there isn't actually that much literature on the current far left movement. So it felt like there was, you know, there were these little boxes that existed, but I wanted to go beyond those boxes. So I really wanted to get people to look beyond the ideologies and at these universal factors. So to do that, I really had to had to get a broader spread as possible. And I think that's really interesting because we even look at, you mentioned that the woman who was in the, the far left Marxist cult in the 1980s, and you see the parallels. When you really delve into the stories, you can see the parallels. And um, Catherine, the woman I mentioned there, she saw them herself. When young women started leaving, she's from Norway, when young women started leaving Norway to go to live under ISIS in Syria, she automatically saw the parallels with her with herself. So the people who've been to this can see this, and I'd really like other people to see these these parallels as well. I mean, you mentioned there, there's obviously parallels in things like the power structures and the way that these groups recruit people. But what similarities did you find in the people themselves? Was there a particular type of person that was more susceptible to this stuff or was falling into it? Did you see any sort of commonalities between them? Well, I think the really interesting thing is where there aren't commonalities in the way, and that's in demographics. Again, we think we have an idea, you know, white working class male goes to far right, you know, young Muslim man becomes an Islamist extremist. But I think what was really interesting was that the, these demographic similarities didn't really exist. I would say the only one that existed was, was youth. I mean, everybody in the book was under the age of 25 when they went through that radicalization process. And I think that's really crucial because that is a time in our lives where we're asking questions. We don't have the answers. We want the answers. We feel so passionately about things. And those, are, those sort of emotions are very, very easily exploited. So that's the one demographic trend. But beyond that, there, there really wasn't. I mean, the whole, the book, the, the people in the book, they cover the entire sort of socioeconomic spectrum. The, the Norwegian woman comes from, you know, literally her family is an aristocratic family with ties to the, to the royalty in, in, in Norway. So, you know, you've got that, then you've got your classic kids of, you know, middle class professionals and then all the way to the sort of more deprived communities. So it covers the whole, the whole range. And I couldn't find any other real demographic similarities beyond age. But what was much more 
striking was the similarities in, in the feelings. And one of the most crucial one was that feeling of, of alienation. And again, that feeling of alienation can differ depending on that person's circumstances, but the underlying feeling is the same. So you can feel alienated in a community. So that community can be your own family. That community can be a specific institution like a university you're at, or it can be something broad like the culture you're in. You can feel alienated from, from that or your religion. But that feeling of alienation remained the same whatever the circumstances were. And I would say another one is uh, that sense of injustice as well. That was very, very strong. And that could be injustice in a person's life. Maybe that person has come into contact with injustice in, in, in the housing system, in policing, in something like that personally in their life or in their education system, but also injustices in the world. I mean, again, we saw the, we use the example of the Syrian civil war, where the injustices that people saw in Syria ended up having such a strong impact on, on people who were just watching these terrible things happening in Syria and feeling completely powerless to do anything about it. So I think that was a, another very strong commonality was that that sense of injustice. So it was these, these human emotions, these human feelings that would sort of collide with broader political and economic context and, and global events at a pivotal point in the person's life that would create these, these perfect conditions for extremism to thrive. And in that process, did they have in most cases, a particular radicalizing moment? Or was it more of a gradual process, do you think? It was, well, I think it's, it's interesting, because there, there wasn't, you know, there, there were different experiences there, because in some you had an individual who explicitly recruited the person. So, you know, if we use the example again of the, the Marxist cult, well, we can see similarities in the feelings that led her into that, into the, onto that path. You know, there was obviously a specific individual, this very manipulative man who was able to recruit people. So there, there, you know, that's a process in which somebody is recruited by an individual. But if we look at somebody falling down the sort of the rabbit hole into the, the far right today, or, you know, more recently, I mean, there's some, there's a, a man in the book who, you know, was sort of the face of white nationalism in, in Trump here in America. If you look at his process, it was all self radicalization because that's what happens online now and of course we can talk more about social media and 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 uh, how online radicalization happens but these kind of things can happen now without sort of one all-powerful individual coming and, and sort of saying you know this is how what you're going to do using that process so it happens in a much more subtle way and then in those cases it does happen over a longer a longer period, I think, as you know, people end up sort of going down the, the rabbit hole of their own beliefs and biases in a more and more extreme direction. You're quite critical throughout the book of attempts by the state to intervene when concerns are raised about people who are drifting towards extremism. Is it that you don't think this stuff was done in the right way? or more that state-led interventions are in some way always doomed to fail? You know, they're, they're just the wrong answer to an intractable problem. I don't think they're always doomed to fail, because there are examples of where they've been done well. I think I use the example of Denmark and, and the famous IRS model, which is where, you know, the, the intervention looks at every aspect of a person's life. So it looks at, you know, their, their marriage, it looks at their housing, their job, their mental health, their education, their employment. It looks at every aspect of a person's life and tries to identify where the problems are that led them to go down this route towards extremism in the first place. And those kind of models have some success because they don't think, oh, well, here's the ideology. We need to change that person's mind. Those are the interventions that don't work 
because they assume that it is just about the ideology and it's not. It's about so much more. So there definitely are models of really positive interventions. But the problem is there doesn't seem to be much um, sharing between different countries or even within the same country of the, the best practice. So you do still have these interventions that are, as I said, very much based on changing people's minds. And you've had some absolutely disastrous ones, like the French government set up these residential centers where they tried to sort of bring people they thought would be vulnerable to extremism and, and lecture them about the, the, the French state and French philosophy. And that just missed the point entirely. They were taking people out of their communities and just trying to force a new ideology on people. So again, that just lacked the, the understanding of what the, the contributing factors were. And I think that's why books like my own are important, because we can't ignore people who've been drawn to extremist beliefs, because if we do, we will never start to understand that sort of real mosaic, that jigsaw puzzle of different factors that, that contribute to that. So it's so important to recognize that when designing pre-interventions or de-radicalization schemes. One I mean, sort of positive aspect of the book was that in all the cases you covered, to a greater or lesser extent, your subjects did eventually move beyond and away from radicalism. What kind of things helped them get to that point, given that, as you say, a lot of the official attempts to work with them were suboptimal? Yeah, exactly. I mean, only one person ended up in a, a sort of official government de-radicalization scheme, and he didn't, you know, he didn't feel that that had really made the difference. For everybody in the book, what had made a difference was interactions with ordinary people that had made them sort of question these narratives that they cocoon themselves in. So all these extreme narratives that are sort of very, very black and white. And that's what's very attractive for people who are sort of, you know, in this gray world where things are very confusing. We don't know what our futures are going to be like. I mean, there's a lot going on. So when someone gives you a sort of black and white solution, it can be very, very tempting to go down that path. But once they were in these narratives, what really made a difference was something that punctured that narrative. And that could be different things. I mean, in some cases of the of, of the far far right, people in the far right, there's been these extraordinary interventions by people from the communities they're demonizing who've reached out to that person. And, you know, that connection has, you know, punctured what well, those narratives they believed about those kind of people. I mean, those are quite extraordinary, those sort of interventions. But it was also just everyday reactions, interactions between people that make them realize that everything they've been taught is is not necessarily correct. All these narratives they've been taught aren't there. But again, it's a very, very slow process. So it's something that's very, very difficult to, to replicate. So that's why I'm, I'm very keen to stress that the most important thing is trying to understand how people get in there so we stop people getting in there in the first place because getting people out again is much much more difficult than getting getting people stopping people from getting into extremism in the first place and if someone listening is worried about someone that they know from your research what would you recommend them to do how do they talk to someone that they're worried about i think it's really it's a really difficult one i think a lot of people have found this with covid for example i mean i think lots of us have Many of us have friends or relatives who are prone to COVID disinformation. And, and I think we can all see how difficult it is when we have those conversations with friends, trying to sort of provide fact-checking materials. We see how that can reinforce those narratives and it becomes like sort of chasing your own tail. And someone's like, oh, well, you know, I don't trust this because this is also fake. And so it's very, very difficult to, 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 to puncture that. So I would say there are two things that really came out of my research. And one is that everybody in the book they had family that stayed 
loyal to them. They didn't they didn't sort of disown um, these people, even when they went down, in some cases, very, very hateful, destructive paths. Um, but they remained there so that if the person, when the person left the group, they did have somebody to come back to. It's much more difficult for somebody to leave an extreme group if there's no other community that exists for them, because then that extreme group is their only community and they leave and they just return to those feelings of loneliness and alienation that, that led them there in the first place. So I think that came out so clearly that they all had supportive, loving family who, although they questioned their choices and tried to make them change their minds in different ways, the fact that they were there for them and they knew that they were there for them was really, really crucial. But I think it's also about how we challenge people or, or how we try and express our unease or our disagreements with their viewpoints. Because, you know, we have to look at what we want to achieve. Because various psychological studies show that if we aggressively challenge somebody or if you mock somebody, this just reinforces their narrative. So it actually has the opposite effect. It makes somebody retreat more into their narratives. And I understand that, especially when it's something that someone heading towards the far right and they're using extremely offensive, hateful, racist rhetoric, you know, the, the reaction is to really strongly challenge that. And that should be done, definitely, especially in the public sphere where we see, you know, xenophobic, racist language being mainstreamed. And the fact that that hasn't been challenged at the public level or in the media as strongly as it can be has really enabled some of the more extreme voices. So it's very, very important that this is challenged. It's very important that it's made clear that this sort of language, racist language, xenophobic language, hateful language of any kind is is unacceptable but again if it's your if it's a friend or a member of your family and you want to help draw them out of that it is really important to think about how you challenge that person and doing it in a way that is not overtly aggressive but providing the information putting in a in a sort of neutral as possible way providing for example facts that debunk disinformation again in a neutral way and just having that information there so you know if they do start to question their own their own narratives that they know somebody's there they have the information but in all these cases people had to come to that point by themselves and as i said it, you know it's such a long process i you know speaking to the 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 women who you know i profiled who went into extreme groups in the 80s and 90s they say they're still going through that process of de-radicalization it's such a long process so nobody is going to suddenly just change overnight and I think that that has been an expectation to a certain extent in some corners of the media. Again, especially when it comes to the far right, we look at people who've been in the far right and we want an overnight sort of U-turn from this person into a sort of a liberal spokesperson. And that's just not going to happen. That misunderstands that process of radicalization and de-radicalization. So I think it's, it's really, you know, it's really important to, to understand that process and not have unrealistic expectations. Finally, do you have any hope that this age of extremism might have peaked? It feels like we've moved beyond the high watermark of Islamic radicalism compared to, say, a decade ago. How about in other ideological spheres? Is there any tentative cause for optimism there? I, I, I wish I could say yes, um, but it, it doesn't really feel that way at the moment because we have a lot of circumstances and events which really create the conditions for more extremism in the future. I mean, obviously, COVID is one of them. I mean, that just replicates the conditions in which extremism thrives. You have a lot of people who feel unsure, um, frightened. Uh, loneliness, of course, was a huge problem during the pandemic. Increased use of social media um, and that sense of sort of powerlessness over your life and future. So this, for example, you know, I don't think we've seen the full impact 
of um, COVID on extremism in the future. You know, lots of people are warning that that can have an impact on, on, on so many levels. So I think we'll have to wait and see. If we look at the, the war in Ukraine as well, I think that powerlessness is one of the strongest um, drivers of, of extremism. And there's lots of people watching that that conflict in Ukraine and, and just feeling completely powerless that they can't do anything about it. So I think there needs to be a mindfulness uh, of that as well. And of course, there's also lots of people um, going to from different countries going to be foreign fighters in Ukraine, which does raise some awkward questions, which do need to be addressed. So there are these these different events that are creating uncertainty. So I do fear that that it isn't it isn't over. That is really why it's important that people do start to, to, to look beyond the ideologies and look more holistically uh, at the causes of extremism so that we can really start to, to, to address those and so it doesn't become a, a more of a problem in the future. Charlotte, thank you for joining me on The Bunker today. Thanks, Justin. It was a pleasure. Far Out Encounters with Extremists by Charlotte McDonald Gibson is published by Granta. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese, with assistant production by Alina Ganatra. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 